Google's code base is managed in a single monolithic repository. An engineer at Google can explore almost any area of the code base within the entire company. In order to enable this, Google has built tooling to support the gigantic monolithic repo, including a virtual file system and a set of build tools. A monolithic repository is not to be confused with a monolithic deployment. Google's infrastructure is not a deployed monolith. It consists of thousands of small services interacting over a network and scaling individually. But all of the code for each of these different independent modules is in the same version control system. Sierra Jaspin is a staff software engineer at Google, working on developer infrastructure. She worked on an internal research project within Google to find out how engineers felt about the monolithic repository system and how it compared to a large number of small repositories, which is an alternative form of management. Sierra joins the show to discuss repository management, internal tooling, and Google's approach to researching developer productivity within the company. Find Collabs is the new company I'm building. Find Collabs is a place to find projects and build them with collaborators or to start your own projects. We have a hackathon. It's the Find Collabs Open, and you can go to findcollabs.com slash open and compete for the $2,500 in prizes. We've got prizes for projects around machine learning, music, visual art, React.js, podcasting, cryptocurrency, computer games, all kinds of stuff. If you're looking to build projects, we'd love to see your projects on Find Collabs. You can go to findcollabs.com slash open and check it out, and I hope to see you there. TripleByte fast-tracks your path to a great new career. Take the TripleByte quiz and interview, and then skip straight to final interview opportunities with over 450 top tech companies, such as Dropbox, Asana, and Reddit. After you're in the TripleByte system, you stay there, saving you tons of time and energy. We ran an experiment earlier this year, and software engineering daily listeners who have taken the test are three times more likely to be in their top bracket of quiz scores. So take the quiz yourself, anytime, even just for fun, at triplebyte.com slash sedaily. It's free for engineers. And as you make it through the process, Triplebyte will even cover the cost of your flights and hotels for final interviews at the hiring companies. That's pretty sweet. Triplebyte helps engineers identify high-growth opportunities get a foot in the door, and negotiate multiple offers. I recommend checking out triplebyte.com slash sedaily because going through the hiring process is really painful and really time-consuming. So Triplebyte saves you a lot of time. I'm a big fan of what they're doing over there, and they're also doing a lot of research. You can check out the Triplebyte blog. You can check out some of the episodes we've done with Triplebyte founders. It's just a fascinating company, and I think they're doing something that's really useful to engineers. So check out TripleByte, that's T-R-I-P-L-E-B-Y-T-E dot com slash S-E daily. TripleByte, byte as in 8 bits. Thanks to TripleByte, and check it out. Sierra Jaspin, you are a staff software engineer at Google working on developer infrastructure. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. 
Thanks. It's nice to be here. The topic of our conversation today is the distinguishing characteristics of monolithic repositories versus alternatives. Could you start us off by defining what a monolithic repository is? Yeah, sure. So we defined a monolithic repository as a source repository that has five properties. So one of them is that it's centralized. All of your source code is in one location as opposed to in separate smaller locations. Um, it's also visible to all of the engineers working on all parts of the code base. It's also synchronized. And we mean by synchronized is that the repository is trunk, but commits to the repository trunk base. So there's no branches. Everybody's always committing to head. And one of the more unique things about a monorepo is that they are complete. So a monorepository has all the dependencies for all your binaries all checked in. And more interestingly, they are unversioned. So you don't have multiple versions of a particular dependency. Everyone's using the same version, and it's always the one that's currently at head. The last part of this is that a monorepo has a lot of standardization. In order to make this all work, you have to have shared tooling. So a single build system, for example, that everybody is using. If I have not worked at a large tech company, I may not be aware that there is any alternative to this monolithic repository. Like when I was in school, if I was working on a project, I would just have one GitHub repo. That repo might have feature branches and other kinds of branches, but I would never have separate repos for the same project. What is the alternative to this monolithic repo strategy? So the alternative would be that every sub-project, every project has their own repository. And a lot of companies do do this, where they're going to have, for every piece of a project in a large company, they'll have their own repository. And the teams then can only view and access their own repo, but they can't access the repo necessarily of all the projects at the company. And by the way, we're talking exclusively about Git repositories, or are we talking more generally about just software repositories? No, more generally. So this can be, of course, Git. You can use Git as a monorepo. You can have lots of small Git repositories, but this could be any source version control system. What are the problems of a monolithic repository? Because it sounds great to just have one centralized place for my code. Yeah, there are some problems here. So one of the big ones is that, quite frankly, at some point you run into scaling issues. And this isn't as much of a problem, right? When you use your example, if you're a student and you've got a, some relatively small amounts of code all in your one GitHub repo. But when you're at the size of Google's code base, we've got, what was it? Two billion lines of code. And so a lot of tooling won't actually scale up to that size. So you have to then have a lot of developer tools around just specifically for that type of repo. What, kind, what kinds of tools would you need? Sorry to interrupt you. Sure, yeah. So one thing you need, for example, is a virtual file system because you literally can't have the entire repository on your machine. Some of the other tools that we've built up custom within Google for this are having a common build tool. Actually, our build tool, um, Bazel, is open source. Other people can use it as well. And in order to navigate all of this code, you need to have a common code indexing tool because, again, Eclipse and your typical IDEs just simply can't navigate that much code. So at Google, we use an indexer that we've built in-house called Kite. This is also um, open source at this point, so other people can use it as well. You know, the, the virtual file system for my gigantic repository, 
it almost sounds like a request for startups. Like, why doesn't that exist? Or are there virtual file systems that people use more broadly? Because I've heard about this phenomenon where Google has this amazing virtual file system for managing the repositories, but I have not heard of that being used anywhere else. That's a really good question. I don't know why. This might just be a matter of it's really hard as a startup to get involved into the developer tools space. You don't see that many companies being successful there. I th- well, except in Israel. Although also, I think people don't necessarily want monolithic repos, and I'm not quite sure why. Well, there are some good reasons not to want them. One of the common complaints we heard before going into this study was that people found the Google code base very daunting and complex, especially new engineers to the code base. And it is scary. Like you, your first week when you open up your code browser and you realize how many files there are and you're going, I don't even know how to navigate this. How do I start? How do I find an example? It can be a little scary and daunting to understand that. And it's takes a little while to understand how to use the tools to get around that. On the other hand, if you're only exposed to some small subset of the code base, you may feel like you can't get a bigger picture. Like I I dealt with this when I was an engineer at, at Amazon and you know there are definitely virtues to only being exposed to some small subset of the code base and I think I actually could have accessed the rest of the code base if I wanted to to a, to a large extent, but I kind of like the default like you can see any part of the code and are encouraged to see any part of the code. Yeah. And that turned out to actually be in our study, though. One of the major benefits that engineers said about this code base is that you get this visibility and that enables a huge number of useful things. So you get code reuse benefits, being able to find the code that you want to reuse. Um, You can also easily find examples. And this is where tools like code indexers like Kyth come in handy is I can go and find a library that I want to use, and I can say, well, how else is everyone else at this company using this library? What are some examples? The other major benefit we get, and this comes not even from being able to see the whole code base, but also the ability to commit to the whole code base, is we receive updates from the library owners. So I, as a software engineer, have many dependencies within my code, And when those libraries update to a new version, they actually send me changes to update my client to the latest version. People listening to this who are frequent listeners who are are longtime denizens of the software world are going to be thinking at this point, okay, wait a second. So Google runs this big (laughs) monolithic repository. I thought I've been hearing for years that this is like, a microservices-based organization, and people are like pushing code independently, and it's like merging with the code base, and then it's like getting deployed in its own small microservice, and then that microservice is getting canaried out independently, it's getting slowly rolled out, and now you're telling me that actually everything is in one big monolithic repository? Help me understand that that distinguishment. Ah. Yeah, this is the distinguishing feature between a monolithic repository and a monolithic architecture. So Google has a monolithic repository, but do we, we do have a microservices architecture. On the other hand, you could have the opposite. You could have a lots of small repositories, but when they're built up into a binary and you release it, it's one monolithic architecture. We don't do that. We do have a monorepo. All these microservices are stored in one place in the code. 
but we release them all independently. That is a really important clarifying point. And I think it's so important because people get the sense that if you're, if you're doing things monolithically in terms of repository management, you must therefore be doing things monolithically in terms of your deployments. And that's that's simply not a binding truth. So so why has Google arrived at this way of, of, of managing repositories versus managing deployments? You know, that's a good question. I don't know the history of how we ended up here. I suspect it rather happened organically, though. Yeah. The context for this conversation is that you have done research and a, a study within Google around repository management. Can, can you set some context for this conversation and, and how you gathered data and, and how you started to work on this project of researching developer preferences around repository management? Yeah. So I'm on a team here at Google that sits in the developer tools group. Um, we're called the Engineering Productivity Research Team. And our goal is to try to improve the productivity of all engineers at Google through making improvements to the developer tools. So we're always looking at how can we better improve these tools and where's kind of the best place for us to put our resources so that we improve, make the most impact across all of Google engineering. Part of that also, though, means understanding and questioning the status quo and understanding where we're at. Uh, we don't want to end up in a case right, where we're in some sort of local maximum and we can't improve farther. So we need to understand why we are currently at the place we're at. Outline for me the spec for your research process. How did you architect your workflow before you got into it? So our research process is we kind of gather a lot of different types of questions people have about our both our source repository, but also our software process. And we look for where, can, where are the biggest questions, where are the things that are making the most impact for developers. Repositories are, of course, the first place you go to. So that's a place where we have large impact. Um, we then formulate some research questions and hypotheses around that based upon sometimes anecdotal evidence or based upon prior studies that we've done. And then outline a research, and then from there we outline actually a study plan and go ahead and execute the study. And we use a lot of both qualitative and quantitative methods, usually combined. This study was a good example of that, where we have a survey and then we back it up with a logs analysis. If Google has this monolithic repository, how did you get counterexamples from within the company? So what we did is we asked engineers about the prior experiences. So for this study, one of the things we had done was a survey. We surveyed, I think we had over 860 responses. And of those engineers, over 300 had prior experience working at a company where they had used multiple repositories. And another 300 had also previously had experience working in open source. And so we were able to narrow in on just those engineers who could do a little bit of compare and mm. contrast. Now, all due respect to that data gathering process, because I think this is just a, an, an area where it's like hard to really get the necessary population sizes to, to, to have like a bulletproof data set. But do you wonder like if Google, like maybe it doesn't even matter, like maybe if Google was to have, and I guess we, we, can't, we can't know in the scope of this conversation, but if Google was to have ended up in a micro repo kind of situation, perhaps it would have just built like good enough tools you know, to have a great micro repo experience. And we might have, it's hard to say. 
I think, though, one of the things we found from the study, though, is we were trying to understand what are the benefits of each type of repository and what are the trade-offs between them. And so one of the things we did find was that tools are really important, but people love their open source tools as well. GitHub came out as, or and Git in general came out as a tool that people hugely love, and they will pick a repo simply for Git, in fact. However, there were other trade-offs we were seeing between multi and monolithic repositories around um, the trade-offs around how you manage your dependencies and whether your code has a lot of consistency across all your code base or whether you have flexibility to make unique development choices for your project. So do you think it might be the case that unless we have the proper tooling, we might have to do micro repos in, in many cases, you know, if we build up this necessary tool and like the virtual file system and a great build tool system, we actually implement that and we have standardization around it, perhaps we can get to monolithic repos. But for lack of tools, perhaps we need micro repos. Well, sometimes you definitely do. Micro repos do provide benefits along the lines of, for example, security, you might be working within an environment where you can't tr- trust people across the company. And or you maybe you have people who are third party contractors working in your code base and you want to limit them to one part and not another part. So there are definitely good reasons for using multi repos. When a rider calls a car using a ride sharing service, there are hundreds of back end services involved in fulfilling that request. Distributed tracing allows the developers at the ride-sharing company to see how requests travel through all the stages of the network, from the front-end layer to the application middleware to the back-end core data services. Distributed tracing can be used to understand how long a complex request is taking at each of these stages, so that developers can debug their complex application and improve performance issues. Lightstep is a company built around distributed tracing and modern observability. Lightstep answers questions and diagnoses anomalies in mobile applications, monoliths, and microservices. At lightstep.com slash sedaily, you can get started with Lightstep tracing and get a free t-shirt. This comfortable, well-fitting t-shirt says, distributed tracing is fun, which is a quote that you may find yourself saying once you are improving the latency of your multi-service requests. Lightstep allows you to analyze every transaction that your users engage in. You can measure performance where it matters, and you can find the root cause of your problems. Lightstep was founded by Ben Sigelman, who was a previous guest on Software Engineering Daily. In that show, he talked about his early development of distributed tracing at Google. I recommend going back and giving that episode a listen if you haven't heard it. And if you want to try distributed tracing for free, you can use Lightstep and get a free t-shirt. Go to lightstep.com slash sedaily. Companies such as Lyft, Twilio, and GitHub all use Lightstep to observe their systems and improve their product quality. Thanks to Lightstep for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily, and you can support the show by going to lightstep.com slash sedaily. (music) 
What was the outcome of this study? What data did you find after surveying this large swath of developers who had experience within Google and outside of Google? Yeah, what we found was there was a lot of really interesting trade-offs between monolithic and multiple source, multiple repository systems. We kind of themed this around five areas. So we did see, as we were expecting, that visibility became a major reason why people prefer a monolithic repository, and not just visibility, but all the benefits that it provides for them. We saw that developer tools, as I had mentioned, is another major reason why people might choose one versus the other, which really has nothing necessarily to do with mono versus multi-repos, but people do have a strong association to their tools. More interesting things, I thought, were around the two big trade-offs between these. So one of them was on consistency versus flexibility. So people identified that in a mono repo, you have forced consistency. For example, at Google, we have one style guide for each language. And in fact, there's even only one version of the language. We're all on the same version of Java right now, for example. And you don't get a choice in that. Uh, you can you know, end up coding in the morning and you go to lunch and you come back and well, now you're on Java 8 because we all migrated together. But there's some consistency in that, that people like being able to always know that they can build everyone else's code and they can always read and see everyone else's code. On the other hand, with the multi-repo, though, you have a lot of flexibility. You have flexibility to select your own programming language that you want to use, to pick your own development stack, um, to choose your own tools that might be different from your neighboring project. And if we had free reign within an organization to choose our own workflows, to choose our own tools... How do you look at the trade-offs there? Is that strictly a good thing, or do you ever have a problem where there's too much heterogeneity of different workflows within an organization? So I think, especially for Google, having that much heterogeneity would cause us to buckle under. We just have too many, too much of a large, too large of a code base to be able to support fifty different programming languages, for example. So we've got a limit to which programming languages we use in our production code, as I said, even which versions we use. So at least for a large company, I think there's a lot of benefits to consistency. And we actually did see that in our data as well. Um, While engineers at Google noticed this trade-off between consistency and flexibility, when it came down to choosing which do you prefer, a mono repo versus multi-repo, people would pick a mono repo for the reason of consistency. They would never pick a multi-repo for a reason of consistency, for a reason of flexibility, which I found kind of interesting. As you were planning out and starting to do this study, did you find that people actually had a debate in terms of their preferences? Or Because I, I'm thinking about this, I'm like, if I had all the build tools necessary to, to have this kind of situation, I can't see wanting a micro repo situation at all. I mean, I guess the security benefit, that seems like one the one area that seems kind of useful. But was there anybody in Google who was actually like, I think micro repos are going to be favored, you know, as they were like predicting the results? Yeah. So one of the things we saw was that, well, a majority of Googlers did prefer using a monolithic repository. There was a minority that prefers multiple repository systems. And their reason, their primary reason we were seeing there was that people like the stability of the dependencies. And this is the other trade-off that we were seeing, where in a monorepo, you're always using the version of 
the, your dependencies that are currently at head, which means as soon as somebody makes a change to that, you're on it. And if they break it, they're breaking you too. So there can, there's always a chance that somebody else breaks your code. Now, within Google, we've done a lot of things to defend against this. Um, there's a practice within Google of doing a lot of defensive testing, for example. And so you can't commit unless it passes all the tests. And so you write tests to make sure that nobody breaks you. On the other hand, there's a lot of people who really still don't like that, just the chance that something could ever break them. They want to have the control of knowing what version they're on and updating it at the point when they choose. And so we saw people who really felt that having those stable dependencies was hugely beneficial. There was even a really interesting minority viewpoint that the ability to change your library at will and update all your clients at the same time, like we do at Google, is actually detrimental to API design. This is not my particular viewpoint. I always have a trouble like describing this one because I so strongly believe against it. But the viewpoint is that by knowing that as soon as you write out a version of your library, that someone's going to use it and they, there's always going to be somebody using version 1.0, even when you're on version 6, means that you have to think carefully about your API design from the beginning and you can't make mistakes. I mean, that granted, but we, we know how to do API back compatibility, don't we? Isn't that a reasonable constraint to impose upon developers? I think it is. I personally view it when, as a library designer myself, when I'm in that role, I view it as, first of all, I'm a software engineer and I'm a human and I'm an idiot. I am going to make mistakes in my API design. There's going to be things I don't anticipate. Additionally, the environment's just going to change. Like that's software engineering. Every, the context is always changing underneath us. And so we need to be able to adapt our libraries and our APIs accordingly. Now, the cool thing about Google is we don't always have to be exactly backwards compatible because you can update all your clients as well. Because remember, we do have access to the entire code base. There's actually a philosophy within Google. It's a weird philosophy here that when you are a library owner, the onus is on you to update your dependencies. Wow. That you're the, the people who depend on you. But it's not strictly like you need to keep your dependencies API back compatible. You could conceivably update your service as well as all of the clients that depend on your service. Yes. And I've done that before. I mean, I've made a mistake in a library before that I was designing. I It was one of those mistakes that I should have known better. And even my manager at the time questioned me on it. It was like, you really want to do that? I'm like, oh, it's will be fine. And Three months later, I was really regretting that decision. And at that point, I had 900 clients. So I had to go and change to create a new version. And then I updated all of my clients to use the new version. Were you able to do that programmatically? Oh, yeah. We have lots of tooling around this. This is where things like our code indexing tool, again, come in really handily. Because I could easily find all of my clients, search for them, automatically update their code, we have tooling that will automatically send out all these updates to everybody and make sure they're properly code reviewed, that they go through all the tests. If there's any test that fails, it'll notify me so I can go and fix it myself. It's an amazing piece of infrastructure. Now I see why people miss working with the tools within Google. <laughs> That's kind of hilarious. You know, I really have to side with you on this one because I have worked, I think I've literally worked at three places that all had multiple versions of Java running at the organization. And I have not worked at many software companies. 
And it's like you're in this constant struggle. Okay, are we updating from Java 6 to Java 7? Oh, no, 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 no sorry. We're talking about the part of the organization that's updating from Java 7 to Java 8. And it's just, <laughs> it's just a nightmare. And that's just Java. Yeah. And the amazing thing here was I got to show up one afternoon and there was an email in my inbox saying, congratulations, you're all now on Java 8. You may now use lambdas at will. And there was even somebody had even written tooling to help you automatically update your code to use lambdas in obvious places. And it was so awesome. <laughs> Amazing. You're revealing a, a world of, of tooling, uh, interesting tooling opportunities here for me. Is there is there anything else that like stands out as kind of a useful or interesting tool that you have uh, seen, you know, an- anecdotally w- within Google, like help with this kind of at scale repository management? I mean, I think the big things are all around our code navigation features. I, I mentioned this code browsing idea, the ability to, though, just go find a piece of code, quickly search for it, and then say, I want to see everyone who's using this code so I can find examples, maybe because I'm trying to use this library myself or I'm trying to understand like an edge case of how I'm using this library. I want to see other people who are doing something similar. It's seconds, a couple of clicks to do that here. And that was actually the big thing I missed when I was where I spent a couple about a year working on an open source project while I was at Google. And I swear I felt like my productivity dropped in half because I couldn't easily navigate my own code, much less the code of the, the libraries that I'm depending on. How did you wind up in uh a situation where you're you're doing these like studies of developer tooling like take me through the kind of winding path that I'm sure led you to that kind of situation. Yeah, so I actually have so my graduate work is in software engineering and so I studied developer tools and studied primarily software frameworks and static analysis tools in grad school. When I came to Google, I was put into the developer tools group, and I was actually on the static analysis team originally. So we actually got a paper on that too. It's called Tricorder. And it's our really fun static analysis tool that runs across all of our code on every single commit and provides engineers with um, useful warnings about their code. From there, though, once I was in the developer tools group, there was actually a few of us in that team who had prior research experience in software engineering And we were noticing that our group as a whole, the developer tools organization as a whole, was looking for kind of what's the next big thing we can work on? How do we, what's the next step we take to improve engineering productivity? And up until this point, it had been kind of random projects that people thought of and you were getting the the low-hanging fruit, but we were hitting a point where it's not clear what do we do next? And our VP actually started asking these questions of, well, if I have 10 people to put on a project, should I put those people on improving our build system or should I put them on the code review tool? And so our team was formed around this idea of help our executives understand where they should best put their resources to improve productivity. Hilarious. You know, static analysis is one of these areas where I had no idea this existed before I started a podcast about software engineering. And yet it has turned out to be just this tremendous field. Like, I think the most recent show we did about static analysis was with an interview with a company called Fossa that basically does static analysis around whether you might have licensing issues in your open source 
repositories. Oh, that's a nice one. Yeah. What are the big unsolved problems in static analysis? That's a good question. So I could go for the more theoretical answers here or the more (laughs) practical answers. Let's do both. (laughs) So the theoretical things that people are still working on are in an area called alias analysis. This is how do you know which objects are pointing, which pointers are actually pointing to the same object. And it turns out that this is a kind of foundational piece to really make any static analysis system work. Um, It's really tricky to make this work and make it work at scale so that you can actually analyze a large code base as opposed to just a little toy problem. This is something that people are still working on. And once they once people are able to solve that better, it will actually enable a huge amount more static analysis tools. Practically speaking, there's a lot of problems that I th- I think that our team here at Google solved a lot, but there's still a lot of problems with getting the right level of utility out of static analysis tools. We see that there's a lot of really cool tools, for example, in academia, but when you look at them in practice, people don't use them because either they have too high of a false positive rate or they don't actually have a high false positive rate, but people don't understand what to do about the problem. So they see an error message and they go, okay, what does this even mean? And if it takes you 15 minutes to figure out what it means and it turns out that it was a false positive, no one's going to use your tool. Um, One of the things we did at Google to try to make static analysis more useful here is we actually started focusing on the simplest possible errors that had the simplest error messages that we thought people would actually want to respond to and fix. Um, And we aimed for less than a, we were aiming for less than 10% false positive rate. I think we're down to 3% false positives now. And so we've built up over the course of five years now a lot of trust in the static analysis tools. And there's now hundreds of analysis tools running within Google. But we take a view of trying to make them very practical. There's actually, it's kind of funny that I spent a lot of time in academia working on some pretty complex analysis tools, did a lot of things with data flow analyses and interprocedural analyses. And it turns out that in most cases, the simple dumb analyses work out really well in practice. So, okay, the alias counting thing, why would you need to do that in a static analysis tool? Because, like, don't garbage collectors just do that at runtime and it works fine? Ah, but that's at runtime. So at runtime, sure, now you have precise, perfect information. That's the benefit. So um, a garbage collector would be something we'd call a dynamic analysis tool. Because at runtime, you have Ah. precise information. But you only have precise information over the path that you are running on, if you view your, all the paths through your code, right, you've got the one path you're going through at runtime. Static analysis has a lot of interesting trade-offs where you're looking now at all the possible paths, including even some that might never occur at runtime because no user ever inputs that kind of data. And so you're trying to handle all those paths. Additionally, you don't have precise information now. You lose information about which objects point, to, which pointers point to which objects, and whether they're the same or not. And that starts to cause problems. Now there is, I should have mentioned this too, there is some really interesting work, I think, that uses both static and dynamic analyses together. And I think there's going to be, a, we're going to see a lot more from that around from academia and hopefully eventually in industry tools as well, where you do things like you use a dynamic analysis to understand what are the possible paths that people take through this code? What are the possible inputs? And then use that to feed into a static analysis to help make it more precise. 
Wow. Then you get to like machine learning based applications, kind of. Kind of. I guess I wouldn't. Because, I mean, there's probably so many dynamic paths you could potentially, you know, find that you, you know, you you take the loss function or, or, you know, you, you just basically feed the data from the dynamic analysis back into the static analysis tool so you get like updating. And I've seen these go the other way too, where you can use dynamic analyses to feed static analyses. Um, actually, one of my co-authors and I did that in grad school where I had a system that was a static analysis that would check your that you're using a library correctly, client side that you're using a library correctly, but you have to create specifications for that. And creating specifications is hard. It's a lot of work. Nobody wants to do that. But he had a dynamic analysis tool that would automatically generate the specifications. And so we could make that work out so we could feed one into the other, and then you could go back again. That's kind of like what a, what a protocol buffer is, right? Or like a gRPC thing? Or is that, am I misunderstanding? So a little bit different. So a protocol buffer would be just the data storage. But this is what I mean for, what I was meaning by this is this is that we're looking at the API for how people use maybe a protocol buffer. Okay. What was it about static analysis that was so intriguing that you you put your graduate efforts into that? (laughs) So that's actually a really interesting story. I was in undergrad. I was working as a software developer at a couple of companies throughout my undergrad career. And I remember having this day where I was working in, I believe, yes, this was I was uh, writing some C-sharp code, and I get a bug report from our tester, and it's like a null pointer exception. And I go and open up the code, and I'm looking at it, and it was so damned obvious. I had done just like a really stupid thing. I had set something to null, and then I immediately, like immediately try to use it. And I'm just going... And I kind of was, you know, a little annoyed with myself because this is a dumb thing that I should have caught. And I also should have, of course, had better tests. But then I thought to myself, how come the compiler didn't catch this? This is so blindingly obvious. And so that's what kind of caused this interest in static analysis tools is that I felt like the compiler should be doing more for me. And in that specific case, like, good point. Why didn't the compiler catch that? Is there something that is fundamentally so hard about, you know, looking at two lines of code and being able to identify that a null pointer exception is going to occur there? So that was a really great example of one where that could have been done easily. And I'm, I have not written in C Sharp in a long time. I am certain that my colleagues at Microsoft have actually already fixed this. But there are cases where it would be difficult. And this is where that alias analysis comes back into play. Like, what if in between those two lines, I had made another call and that did get initialized somehow? And so it's important to know where pointers are actually at. DigitalOcean is a reliable, easy-to-use cloud provider. I've used DigitalOcean for years, whenever I want to get an application off the ground quickly. And I've always loved the focus on user experience, the great documentation, and the simple user interface. More and more people are finding out about DigitalOcean and realizing that DigitalOcean is perfect for their application workloads. This year, DigitalOcean is making that even easier with new node types. A $15 flexible droplet that can mix and match different configurations of CPU and RAM 
to get the perfect amount of resources for your application. There are also CPU-optimized droplets, perfect for highly active front-end servers or CI-CD workloads. And running on the cloud can get expensive, which is why DigitalOcean makes it easy to choose the right size instance. And the prices on standard instances have gone down too. You can check out all their new deals by going to do.co slash sedaily. And as a bonus to our listeners, you will get $100 in credit to use over 60 days. That's a lot of money to experiment with. You can make $100 go pretty far on DigitalOcean. You can use the credit for hosting or infrastructure, and that includes load balancers, object storage. DigitalOcean Spaces is a great new product that provides object storage. And, of course, computation. Get your free $100 credit at do.co slash sedaily. And thanks to DigitalOcean for being a sponsor. The co-founder of DigitalOcean, Moisey Uretsky, was one of the first people I interviewed, and his interview was really inspirational for me, so I've always thought of DigitalOcean as a pretty inspirational company. So thank you, DigitalOcean. Not to go further down the static analysis path, but I, I find it kind of interesting. We did a show kind of recently around this company that was like a security company that did static analysis on Ruby. I think it was on basically on like at the latest possible time. So like after, so I think Ruby code like turns into to C code, for example, or it compile. I think it compiles down to C or it compiles down to C structs at least. In any case, it, they did static analysis on the lower level interpretation that the code compiled down into rather than the higher level. Have you seen any like interesting, I don't know, studies or anecdotes in the world of like, you know, doing static analysis on the high-level language versus like the the bytecode or something. Yeah, there's. I mean, there's plenty of tools that do each of those. There's pros and cons as far as building a tool that does that. Um, one of the benefits of working on kind of like a for like if you were on Java, working on the bytecode level, is that there's fewer cases to handle. All of the syntactic sugar gets compiled down. It's much more straightforward to actually write an analysis tool. There's also benefits if you can compile multiple languages into the same format. And so I know there's companies uh, out there that are doing that. And the idea is that way they can trace code paths that go between multiple languages. Or you can write a general checker that works for many languages. So there can be benefits there. The downside of working at kind of more of a bytecode level is it makes it more difficult to write error messages that the engineer can actually understand. <laughs> yeah. At least at Google, we typically are working on source code level. Yeah. Coming back to the research area, are there, are there other studies you, you've worked on or is, is the only study you've, you focused on this, this repo question? No, we've actually got a bunch of other studies, some of which have been published already and a few that we've got in the works. So one of the ones, for example, that we've published recently is looking at productivity factors. So what are the things that influence someone being productive? Um, we ended up, uh, one of our my colleagues went and did a literature review going back the last 50 years of research on productivity. And he pulled out a whole bunch of different things that the research literature had said makes people productive or not productive. And 
we then filtered through that, combined things that were the same, and ran a survey at several companies, actually. So it wasn't just Google. Um, We ran it also, and at Google, we ran it also on not only software engineers, but we also looked at quantitative analysts because they are another form of knowledge worker and we wanted to see what the differences were. Software engineers and other knowledge workers. It was a really interesting study. We found that there were a lot of things that influenced people's, this is all self-reported productivity, by the way, I should say. There's like no objective measures here because it's really hard to objectively measure productivity. But there were a lot of things that correlated with people's self-reported productivity. And they were in fact different at each of the companies. And they were even different even at Google, between the software engineers and the quantitative analysts. Ugh. So result inconclusive? Well, I don't know if it's result inconclusive. It was useful to see that there was those differences, though, because that might tell us something about how we focus on each of these user communities. It means that maybe we can't just say, if you do the following five things, that's going to make your engineers more productive. Maybe your engineers have different needs, and so you have to rerun the study for them. Have you seen anything conclusive around this open office plan versus closed offices versus remote work, kind of like high-level circumstances mapping to productivity? I have not been keeping up with that research. I know it's very popular amongst like you know the Hacker News crowd right now. <laughs> yeah. um, I've actually not been keeping up as much with that research. I probably should get into it and find out what's going on there, though. I've just been seeing the headlines, though. Yeah. Yeah. That one's tough. I I mean, that one's just really hard to measure. It's kind of like the same thing with the question of like, if Google would have gone in the direction of micro liths, you know, arbitrarily, would they have ended up with just great tooling for micro liths? Uh, You know, there are these companies that say like, hey, we're remote first, you know, like GitLab, for example, and like, we just do everything over Slack channels and things are fantastic. Why don't you all join the remote club? And, you know, it's hard. It's just very hard to know, like, okay, is, you know, you're working on a different kind of software, you know, maybe, maybe there's something about the culture, the culture of the founders that leads to a remote, remote culture being uh, holistically viable. I think, you know, just, I guess my meta point here is, it's very hard to do this kind of research and, and have real confidence in your results. It is. There's a lot of variables from one company to the next, as you mentioned, the context, whether or not how often, for example, people need to collaborate for this type of project. Any guiding principles there when you're thinking about like necessary sample size or, I don't know, other kind of parameters that will allow for a study to be, you know, even just in the foundational level, like a viable, you know, sample set or or a viable study architecture? I think it depends on the type of study you're going for. There's, I think, sometimes a view that, especially within software engineering research, that we need to always have the best possible studies with, you know, a control group and a treatment group and that they've we've narrowed down our independent variables, but and also have a large N on top of it. And that's just not realistic. Um, it's something you can do in medicine, but even in medicine, they start with other types of studies. They start with small case studies, for example. If you look at you know, medical research, especially in the cases where it's some very rare disease, they're not doing large end studies. They're doing small case studies and they build up a kind of foundation of case study work before they can start making more interesting hypotheses and saying, okay, this seems to work across all these groups or it doesn't only works in certain groups. Now let's make some new hypotheses and start having more experiments. And I think that's true for software engineering research as well. Um, I'm currently 
because I'm at Google, I'm currently in the case of I'm doing kind of effectively a large case study within Google on all of our research. On the other hand, my colleagues in academia are frequently doing large case studies on open source. And every once in a while, somebody actually is able to do a study across multiple companies. And we kind of end up pooling all of that together. And across several different research papers, we're able to start seeing things emerge. So the thing you alluded to earlier where you would like to let the executives have more insight, statistical insight, anecdotal insight, white paper style insight into are they allocating engineering resources properly? Was there any kind of reallocation or, or insights or act, I guess actioned insights that came out of this the, the repo study? Out of the repo study, I don't think we did have any other than just like everyone's happy with the status quo, so let's keep it going. <laughs> I guess that's true. <laughs> I mean, it, came, it, it was so blindingly obvious that we should just kind of keep this going that we just left it like that. Uh, we have had other studies, though, where we've either at an executive level been able to give some information that helped them make a decision and maybe change course. And honestly, a surprising number of cases, our recommendation comes back with keep the status quo. Everyone's happy with this. And it's like this for a reason. But we have even had a, on a mi- more micro level, we've had times where we've told the whole team of like a tools team, hey, you should work on this problem rather than this other problem. So like some of the programming languages teams come to us regularly and ask, which of these following three problems should we be prioritizing this year? And we're able to use our survey data and our logs data to actually give them some useful insights on where they could be most impactful. There was an interview I did with somebody from Facebook recently, and Facebook actually has also thrived, I think, uh, to my understanding, has also thrived with a monorepo. Yeah, they have. And the way that they've done it my understanding is actually with with probably significantly less tooling and I like or at least uh, I know I would guess and, and I've read that like feature flags play a really important role like you kind of like manage the different areas of the code base with feature flags which is kind of like a, a more late binding uh, well, I don't know I, I'm, I shouldn't be speculating on this but anyway I guess the question I want to ask is like do you think the broader industry can learn anything from this study or do you think it's too google specific or or gigantic company specific to say if if people should go monorepo or not i think there is something to be learned here i would not for example if i was at another company i would not take what we've done and say oh google's using a monorepo therefore we should too and clearly i think our number was something like 88% of Googlers say they prefer their monorepo. I wouldn't take that number and say, therefore, every company should use a monorepo. But I would take is looking at the benefits that go- the Googlers have identified to a monorepo and the benefits they've identified as a multi-repo and those trade-offs and the tensions we identified. That, I think, does apply across other companies. And so I think that's where you can kind of make the engineering choice of Let's see, which of these trade-offs apply best for my company? I don't know if you can answer this, but there must be some repos within Google that have to be permissioned. Like, I mean, it's almost like a zero-trust networking kind of thing. Is there a permissions model for this monorepo? The permissions model is primarily around who commits to the code and who approves those commits. So I can commit to any part of the code base, or I can at least attempt to, but the owner of that code is the one who says, yes, I'm going to accept this commit. Um, You can see all of it. And you can see all of that. And then we do have some 
cases where people have separate repos, so not quite all the code bases in one mono repo. One of the classic examples, actually, is our, a lot of our open source projects. So Android and Chrome are both in their own repos, although they're fairly big projects on and of themselves. And then we do have several GitHub projects for a lot of our open source projects. Oh, good lord! Like I'm trying, I'm thinking about the Android versus Android and Chrome repo management. That sounds like a, a can of worms, or they each sound like cans of worms, respectively. Is is there anything notable about how did the, all those different versions of Android get managed? You know, I'm actually not working with the Android team right now, so I'm not okay. entirely certain. But I do know they have a Git-based repository. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. And any anything notable about the about the open source the interaction between the open source code bases and the the main Google code bases? Like I don't know, in, integrating those those two kinds of somewhat disjoint domains. Yeah, there's some tooling around trying to keep things in sync. So if your project, for example, internally depends on an open source project, there's some work around how to keep those projects in sync together. But it's pretty straightforward tooling actually that we have there. This is kind of our prop, our solution for everything. Google just add more tools. <laughs> so we're we're seeing. I think when a company reaches a certain size, I think it often behooves the company to set up some sort of research thing, like what Google has done. Like you have Google research, you have Facebook research. I think you know companies like Stripe probably have something nascent around that looks like research. Microsoft research obviously. Do do you have any any general principles for, you know, if if I let's say I'm a company, I'm like I'm just reaching like the 1000 person mark and I've got really good traction and like everything's going really well. I you know, I'm not constrained by capital. I can hire a research team. Any advice for for setting up a research team or managing a, a in-company research team? I think the big thing with us that made us successful was we were very careful about how we grew this team and the people we, that we added to it over time. Um, one of the things we did is we, we did start small with people who had prior experience with software engineering research. But over time, we've added to that group, and we've been especially adding people who have social sciences background. So our team right now... About half of us are software engineers. Of that group, it's about half software engineering research background and half the people have more of a mathematics background. And then the other half of our team actually is more social scientists. So we've got people who came from cognitive psychology, neuroscience, behavioral economics, and they bring a lot of rich research methods that are unique and they're thinking about problems in a different way, right? You've got a, once you've got a behavioral economist on your team, they're thinking about how do I tweak things to make people do the right thing without them really realizing it? How do I set up the incentives? You get someone who's cognitive psychology and they're noticing the differences between how people think about their colleagues and how that might affect their work product. So I think that has been very beneficial to us. I know some other companies also try to get people like that as well. So kind of envious of your lunchtime conversations. They are some very, very interesting lunchtime conversations. I've learned so much on this team. So last question, what kinds of studies are you curious about? Or like, what do you see as the future of your research to the extent that you can talk about it? Well, we've got some studies hopefully coming out in the next couple of years. We're going to be working on things like looking at 
build speeds and how that affects productivity. Yeah, I know it's a hot topic. My, Again, my code is compiling. I know. We're also, we've got some fun research, I think, on the code readability process at Google that we're going to try and push out the door because I think there'll be some really interesting lessons there for people outside of Google. More broadly, I'm really interested in getting more involved in trying to understand things like how context switches affect engineers and how often do we context switch and how difficult is it to get back on context. There's actually a couple of papers that have been coming out in the academic community about this where they've been trying to study GitHub and looking at like within GitHub, how many projects does an engineer work on in a given day? or a given week? And are they switching back and forth between them quickly? Or are they working on one for two days and another one for three days? And how does that affect productivity? This is actually what made me need to leave my career as a software engineer, a corporate software engineer, at least, is because Cal Newport has this thing he calls deep work. Like everybody needs to be doing deep work. They need to be, they need to have some segment of their day where they're not context switching. They need to be completely focused on what they're doing. Yeah, you know, I happen to really enjoy shallow work with tons of context switching, and that's kind of a rare work environment to find in in my experience, but I'll be very intrigued to see what you find in your context switching analysis. Yeah, I'm going to be curious too. One thing we do have some evidence of is that there are differences from one person to the next here. So there are people like you who would rather be switching between a lot of different projects and doing more shallow work. And there are people who are like, no, 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 I need to work on a single project at a time, no interruptions until this thing is done. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out with maybe how we change up again, how we change up the tooling. How do you maybe even go into open office spaces? How do we change up how people work based upon their preferences and what makes them personally the most productive? I don't think there's a single right answer here, though. Well, I completely agree with you there. Sierra, thank you so much for coming on the show. I've been really enjoying the conversation, and I look forward to seeing your future research. Thanks so much. GoCD is a continuous delivery tool created by ThoughtWorks. It's open source, it's free to use, and GoCD has all the features that you need for continuous delivery. You can model your deployment pipelines without installing any plugins. You can use the value stream map to visualize your end-to-end workflow. And if you use Kubernetes, GoCD is a natural fit to add continuous delivery to your cloud-native project. With GoCD on Kubernetes, you define your build workflow, you let GoCD provision and scale your infrastructure on the fly, and GoCD agents use Kubernetes to scale as needed. Check out gocd.org slash sedaily and learn how you can get started. GoCD was built with the learnings of the ThoughtWorks engineering team, and they have talked in such detail about building the product in previous episodes of Software Engineering Daily. ThoughtWorks was very early to the continuous delivery trend, and they know about continuous delivery as much as almost anybody in the industry. It's great to always see continued progress on GoCD with new features like Kubernetes integrations, so you know that you're investing in a continuous delivery tool that is built for the long term. You can check it out yourself at gocd.org slash sedaily. Wow! 